I want to share with you from Nehemiah. Now, I'm not going to be just in one portion of Nehemiah. I do somewhat of a survey of leadership moments in his ministry. And I hope we can take those, we can bring them into our own heart and our own life, find some encouragement, find some exhortation, and um, allow the Lord to do what he desires to do in our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for men like this that we're going to study. Men that, uh, they took a bold step of faith. They left what was comfortable. They went out to answer the call on their life. And then they modeled for us, Lord, how to do the call on our own life. I do pray, Lord, you would strengthen. I pray you would exhort. I pray you would encourage us. And we pray, Lord, that we will build in such a way that it pleases you, that you are pleased, Lord, as you look at not only what has been done, but, Lord, the way we've done it. And so would you be honored and glorified, Lord, in all that we do. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I got a few points. I don't know that I'm going to get through them. I always, does anybody else ever make too many notes? I do that like... I've been doing that for 27 years. For 27 years, I always have too many notes. So we'll see how far we get. But here's some words that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the distress. We're going to talk about being discouraged and distracted. We're going to talk about how we make decisions, getting the work done, and the differences that exist among different types of leaders. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we'll come to our first point, verses 17 through 18. Here we're going to see that, and the point is that leaders must speak to the distress. And it is interesting when you think about the distress. So let's read it. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lies waste. And the gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. And also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. It's been 150, about 140 years um, since the invasion. Uh, The first pilgrims came back around 537 B.C. Ezra comes in 458. It's 444 B.C. I think that as Nehemiah takes these guys out there to look at the, the rubble, I wonder, the text doesn't say it, but I wonder, do they even see it anymore? I mean, after that long, you, you know, a lot of these guys probably had, had been born there and been raised there. All they had ever seen were the burned gates and the demolished walls. It's just, it's just the way it is. We just... We, we don't even notice it. And so he takes them out there and he says, you see the distress. Look at this. Look at what's going on. Now listen, when you want to speak to the distress in a generation, when you want to speak to the distress in a person's life or in their family, it, sometimes you don't get the response you want, do you? Sometimes when you say that, that is immediately offensive to them. And the enemy is constantly wanting to push us back off of that mark. He's telling us, don't don't talk about that stuff. That's a hard thing. And they don't want to hear that. Say the things that are nice. Say the things that are safe. And I really don't even, I, I don't think that's something that we're really having a problem with in our movement. It could be, I don't know. I, but I don't think so. As I spend time with brothers and sisters, I hear them speaking to these issues. But I, what I want us to know is that's not what's happening out there by and large. I don't know how many of you have seen the recent survey that came out. It was put together by Arizona Christian University, led by Barna. And this it just came out. It just came out. And this is some distressing news. Here's what he, they say. They, they, thought, they surveyed a 1,000 pastors. I don't know of what denomination. I actually emailed them and asked them where the sample came from. I don't know if it's evangelicals. Or, I'm assuming that it's just all pastors in the United States. 
They surveyed a thousand of them. And as it comes back, they broke it down into the different positions in the church and what pastors think about a biblical worldview. They measured it by eight different components. Things like morality and behavior, the word of God, salvation, sin, biblical truth. And so they did this survey, and when it came back, they said they were shocked. Now, these are the ones that are constantly doing these surveys, and they are shocked with the results that came back. Over, if you count all Christian pastors, 37% of pastors in the United States do not have a biblical worldview. 37. The senior lead pastors, they break it down into each ministry position, 41% of them have a biblical worldview. The associate, the assistant pastor, 28%. The teaching pastor, our you know, model is the senior pastor would also be the teaching, but a lot of have you know, a, a teaching pastor, 13%. 13% of them have a biblical worldview. Children and youth pastor, 12%. In the average church in America, when a parent takes their kid into that Sunday school classroom or takes them to the youth group, there's an 88% chance that they're going to be taught something other than a biblical worldview. Executive pastors, 4%. 4% of executive pastors in the United States, based on that 1,000 pastor uh, survey, have a biblical worldview. They don't want to speak to the distress. They don't want to address those issues, and they're not going to address those issues. They're not going to look at a situation and say, that's sin, and you've got to repent of that, brother. You can't treat your wife that way. You can't live in that kind of immorality. No, you can't, you know, live a homosexual life or you can't live in adultery. You can't do these things. You must believe the Word of God. It is true. It is trustworthy. What do we believe about the Word of God? We believe it's inspired. What does that mean? It's come from God. Therefore, it's what? It's inerrant. We can trust what it says for our life. But not only is it inspired and not only is it inerrant, it's also this. It's sufficient. It can speak to all areas of life. And the Word of God has been doing that for thousands of years. And now a generation is raising, being raised up within the church that says it is not sufficient. We shouldn't listen to it. We've got to go out and do something different. We've got to hear something different. But not only is it inspired and is it inerrant and is sufficient, and for evangelicals, for the most part, I'm curious to see who they sampled in that survey. But for the most part, we'll fight for that. We'll defend that. We'll go into our apologetics to defend the inspiration of Scripture. But on the last point of Scripture, it's authoritative. Now, I think that's where even the evangelical begins to get a little soft. Oh, we believe it's from God, and we believe that it's without error. And if you say otherwise, we're probably going to end up in a fight. But does it have the authority to speak to my life about what I think and what I touch and what I say and how I treat people and how I handle my finances? Well, listen, 37% of the pastors in the United States would say yes, and the others would say no. Who's going to speak to the distress? Who's going to speak to the brokenness in our generation. And listen, it's not us above others. Okay, we are committed to the Word of God, and we approach it in a particular way where we're going to teach through it. And we go through the entirety of Scripture. We love doing that. But you know, if there's a brother down the road that believes in the you know, inerrancy and the inspiration, the sufficiency and authority of Scripture, and he's going to teach a biblical, topical message and call people to salvation, I'm going to cheer him on too. I think there's a better way to do it, but I'm going to cheer him on in the work that he's doing. So it's not just us. I'm not saying it's just Calvary Chapel. Please, I'm not saying that. But listen, here we're the ones in the room right now. We must speak to our generation. 
And we need to do it with love, and we need to do it with compassion. There doesn't need to be veins popping out of our face and our neck when we begin to address these things. We need to speak the truth in what? In love. It's not hard. That's not a hard combination. We can easily speak of the truth about gender and and the creative order of God. That's not a hard thing to do, and we can do it with love and compassion as well. And I know that you are, and I pray... My point really is, as I was saying about this, is that I know they're already doing this. I just want to say, in light of what we are seeing going on in our culture in America right now, don't stop. And if you're here today and you're thinking, my involvement in the children's ministry, it's really not that significant, I want to tell you something. Yes, it is. It's incredibly significant. I'm, I'm just, you know, helping out with the youth. I don't do a lot. But do you believe in the Word of God? Do you point those kids to get into the Word and trust the Word of God? Then, you know what? You're among 12% in the United States that are doing that. I think you're needed. And we're glad that you're there. And if you're teaching the middle schoolers, I mean, God bless you. But they, you know what? We're glad that you are speaking the Word to those 4th and 5th graders. That You believe in it, and you're modeling it. Don't give up. It's no time to quit. Because if we quit speaking the word of the Lord, it's not going to be long before it's gone from this country. And let's not think that it can't happen. Just do a little read of history. And where the revivals happen, where the moves of God have happened in the past, and you'll find that there's a lack of men in the pulpit speaking the word of the Lord, or in the Sunday school classrooms, or in the youth group. So we need to stand fast. We need to to be ready to not buckle. And we need to have the strength of the Lord to make certain that doesn't happen. The second thing I want to talk about, so Nehemiah spoke to the distress. It's broken down. This is not good. God wants us to be a defended city. God wants us to have walls that are intact. We speak to our generation, about the wholeness that they can have in the Lord and to Christians on how to live their life. So speak to the distress. Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. Well, I don't know if they want to hear it. You know what? I think what we have seen over the last two years is that if you're willing to be bold and and welcome people into the church of Jesus Christ and you're willing to speak the truth, there are so many people that are so happy to find your church right now. Praise the Lord for that. I am thankful for the people. I, I, you know, if you would have told me that COVID would have been the time that we would have seen the church grow, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have expected it. And yet I know, and I've talked to so many of you, that's exactly what you saw happen. Why? Because while we were sitting down trying to figure out what are we going to do with our schedule? What services are we going to hold? Okay, we're going to have Sunday morning. We're going to have Wednesday night. I don't know if we need to have the, you know, this food you know, event going on in, you know, right now. If a church gets shut down, I want it to be over Sunday morning or a prayer meeting. I don't want it to be on some secondary event. And so we were adjusting our schedules, weren't we? Well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. But this we are going to do. And we were all examining the church life. But you know, while we were examining church life and church schedules, others were examining church doctrine. And a lot of them, when they had the opportunity to come back, they came back differently. You're hearing it in the church. The people are coming and say, our pastors, they've changed their thinking. They've changed the way they're doing things now. Stand firm. Don't be afraid to speak the word of God in love. So second point. Leaders must not get discouraged. Still chapter 2. I have two passages to look at from his life. Verses 19 and 20. And the Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So he answered and said to them, The God of heaven will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 6. But it so happened when Sanballat heard 
that we were rebuilding the wall, that he was furious and very indignant and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned? Verse 3, now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn the reproach on their heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity. Do not let their sin be blotted out from before you, for they have provoked you to anger before the builders. So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. On two separate occasions, Satan raises up these guys to come and mock and ridicule and despise the work they were doing. It was early on in the work. And it was hard work. And they knew that if they could discourage them in the work, that maybe they wouldn't do it. Because the last thing these guys wanted was there to be a secure Jerusalem for the people of God to have the walls built up. That they might walk and, and live life as God intended them to with joy and safety, serving and worshiping the Lord. They didn't want that. They wanted to have free access to come in and harass them anytime they wanted. So the tactic that Satan chooses to use is the tactic of discouragement. Has anybody noticed he's still using that tactic? Has anybody ever been discouraged? Well, I, I certainly have been discouraged. I want to share with you a few moments. And, and, and actually this word where it says that they laughed at him in verse two, uh, verse 19, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, it means to despise them to their faces. They were in their faces, sticking out their tongue and saying, what in the world do you think you're doing? You've come here to build this thing. This thing is a joke. Your work is a joke. You're a joke as a builder. This will never happen. Why don't you just go on back? You know, they say, even if a fox goes up on it, it's going to fall down. I love when they dedicate the wall because you know what happens up on the wall? They have a big worship service on top of the wall, don't they? It's like, ah, I think more than a fox can come up on this wall. And it's a way of just kind of saying, look what our God has done. But I remember back in 1994 when I made that decision that we were going to come to Lynchburg, Virginia. I was living in Vista, California. And um, we're, so we're coming to Lynchburg, Virginia. And um, we've got two kids. And I've got to decide you know, what I'm going to do when I go out there and work. I was, I was young. I was 27 years old. I had gone into full-time ministry probably around the age of 21, went on the mission field, and um, been, in, been in ministry, and now it was time for me to go. But I hadn't done anything other than ministry. I had never had a construction job. I hadn't done anything. I mean, I, I, was, I, I was Chuck E. Cheese once, I, but I, I didn't see that as being very marketable, you know, as I went out there. Um, I also pushed people around in wheelchairs at the airport. I sold boots. I worked for Hertz Rent-A-Car. That was probably the thing that was the most marketable. But I'm like, I don't, I don't have any skills. I didn't have anything to offer anybody. And so um, what I decided to do, because 1994, you didn't go on the Internet and find out about Lynchburg, Virginia. You wrote the Chamber of Commerce. You got in and out an Atlas. You drew a circle. How many people are in this area? Um, you know, you talk to other people. Tell me about the community. Well, I ended up um, calling the local newspaper, and I asked them to send me the newspapers. So about once a week, I would get a week's worth of newspapers that would come in. I'd open those up, I'd lay them out on the dining room table, and I'd begin to go through the jobs. I kid you not, as I looked at this, six bucks an hour, seven bucks an hour. I'm like, are you kidding me? I was making more than that in high school selling boots. How in the world, you know, this is, you know, because when I was, you know, I'll do construction. I'm as young, I hadn't done it before, but you know what? If somebody gives me a chance, I know I'll work hard. I'm like, I can't support my family on seven bucks an hour. And so when those would come in, it gets so discouraging. And then I would look for homes to rent. And as I look for homes to rent in Lynchburg, Virginia, kind of like right now, you couldn't find homes to rent. 
They're just Liberty University and the students coming in. They rented them all up. So I'm like, I can't find a place in the newspaper to even rent. I mean, seven bucks an hour. What in the world am I going to do? And so every week they would come in, that wave of discouragement would come over me. And then I was sitting there and the Lord said to me, you're not going to have to work. And I began to rebuke myself. <laughs> you are so full of pride. I mean, of course you're going to have to work. You've got to get out there and you've got to make tents. You gotta, why would you think that you wouldn't have to work? And I would rebuke myself repeatedly. And yet it stuck with me, you're not going to have to work. And so as they came in, I was sitting at the table, and my wife, uh, she came in, she looked, she goes, uh, she goes, how does it look? I said, it looks terrible. <laughs> That's how it looks. I said, I don't know how this is going to happen. She goes, well, are you sure we're supposed to go? I said, I, I know we're supposed to go. I said, you know what? I said, never mind. She goes, go ahead and say it. I know what you're going to say. And I said, no, you tell me what I'm going to say. <laughs> she, and she said, she was right. She goes, no, you need to say it. She goes, say it. And I said, I'm not going to have to work. She goes, I know. The Lord's already told me that. You're not going to have to work. So she goes, would you please quit looking at those newspapers? Because <laughs> it wasn't a good day when after I was finished looking at the newspaper. I was so discouraged. And I put those down and I didn't look at them again. It's a, it's a long story. But you know what? I didn't have to work. We got there and I didn't have to work. The church began to grow quickly. The church there had saved up money. Um, when we were leaving, uh, we were given a lot of donations and we had this, this nest egg of money. And it was a time I didn't have to work until I had to work. <laughs> and then that became a discouraging moment. And so when I, the money dropped and, and the church was growing, it was going pretty good, but we did a building project. We weren't the best managers of the, the money and operational expenses. We've learned how to do that one. Um, but it was tough. And so we, I ended up having to go get a job, part-time job. So I was like, what am I going to do? What job could I possibly get where I can still do ministry and do this? And so I, lo I looked in the, what do you think I looked in? Newspaper. And what do you think my job was that I ended up getting? Delivering newspapers. <laughs> and so, yes, people called me Pastor Troy the paper boy. And if I ever write a book, that will be one of the chapters in that book, Pastor Troy the paper boy. And I delivered those newspapers for over a year. And then the church was able to get back on his feet. But the Lord did so much in my life in those times. And I remember the first day I was finishing delivering the newspapers, and the Lord said to me, don't you ever complain about this job. I'm like, I'm not complaining. He goes, don't you ever complain about this job. This is my provision for your life for right now. And not only that, I don't want you to ever get sympathy for any, from anyone that you have to deliver papers. If they start to say, oh, Troy, I'm so sorry you have to deliver the papers, I want you to stop them, and I want you to give me glory. I said, you got it, Lord. And so there were plenty of people that felt bad for Troy, Pastor Troy the paper boy. I said, don't feel bad for me. This is God's provision in my life. This really was driven home. My son is here with me, but when he was in second grade, we were up in the mountains and, uh, by our house, and um, you know, Pastor Troy the paper boy didn't have a lot of money, and so he had brand new shoes on, and I said, he goes, can I go play down by the creek? I said, yes, but don't get in the water. Of course, what happens? I walk down there. He's coming up, and he's got little bubbles of water coming out of his shoes. Like, Tyler, I told you not to get in the water. I didn't. I got on the rocks in the water, and I fell off, and now my shoes are all wet. And so I said, you're going to buy your next pair of shoes. So what did dad mean by that? It's a dad threat. Anybody ever done a dad threat? I know you've all done a dad threat. Every one of us has done a dad threat. And the dad threat was this. You're going to buy the, your next pair of shoes. So that meant I was going to give him extra chores. I was going to give him money. He was going to put it in a jar. We're going to take the money in that jar. He was going to have to take his money and go buy those shoes and learn the value of shoes. I never did it. It was a dad threat. <laughs> I don't recommend it, but we've all done it. So it's parent-teacher conference. We walk in, and the teacher, Miss Gilmore, says, Hey, could you read this paper? Um, I'm just kind of curious to know what 
Tyler is talking about in this paper. That was two or three sentences or a little picture of a creek. And I start reading through it. How long does it take to read a second grader's two sentences, three sentences? Well, I was reading this and I was, I was taking some time to read it because I was formulating my answer. Because what this little punk did <laughs> was he wrote the story and he said, he goes, um, we went to the creek and um, I got my shoes wet, and now my dad said I have to buy my own pair of shoes. <laughs> How do you think I'm feeling right now? Oh, this woman's going to turn me in because I don't take care of my kids. She doesn't think I'm a good dad. She doesn't think I provide for him. And in that moment, the Lord said, that is why I don't want you to ever complain about the provision that I give you in your life. Because when you do that, you rob glory from me. And it makes me look like I'm not a good father. That's why I don't want you to complain. And so that's kind of a sub-point here to the discouraging moments of Troy Warner's ministry life. But it was such an important lesson for me. First week in Lynchburg, I was watching our little sign go up, and a, a pastor came up to me. He goes, oh, are you a new pastor in town? I go, yes, I am. He goes, here's my advice to you. Mm, I want to hear this. He goes, pack up your bags and get out of this town as fast as you possibly can. <laughs> he goes, this is the worst town in America. He goes, what is your ministry like? I said, I want to, we have a balanced approach to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to teach the Word of God chapter by chapter, book by book through the entirety. He goes, it'll never work in this town. These people hate expository preaching. I'm telling you, pack your bags and leave now. I'm leaving next week. <laughs> and he did. And I said, well, you know what? I don't have freedom to do that because God told me to come here. A few years into the ministry, and I'm not embellishing, I was out at Walmart, and this guy came up to me. He said, are you Pastor Troy? He goes, yeah. He goes, are you still meeting in that little rinky-dink building? I said, yes, I am. <laughs> he goes, you still have a few people showing? What do you got, like five or six people coming now? You up to 10? You have 12 people now? This guy's a professing believer, by the way. And I said, no, I think we got 50. He goes, 50 people. Are you serious? So what? You basically take up an offering so they can support Pastor Troy? So the church exists to give you a paycheck? He says, I, I, goes, I would be really curious to know how much money goes to missions at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. You probably don't even give enough money to keep a missionary on the field for five minutes. He probably was right in the economics of the world, but not in the economics of God. And he said, you know what? You need to close the doors. You need to go home because this church is not needed in this town. And you ought to bring all of those poor people that are going to your church and bring them over to the church I go to. I'm not going to mention the name of the church because I know that pastor would have rebuked that guy had he heard him talking. But I'm standing in Walmart and having this guy speak to me like that. Not long after that, a kid that had been going to the church started going to another church. He was on the worship team, and he came back to say hi. And he said, he goes, you know, Pastor Troy, I've got a question for you. I, you know, at this other church, you know, and it was a growing church, in, you know, good church. And he says, you know, the, um, the leadership said that the church I used to go to, Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, nothing was happening there. That God really wasn't doing anything. Nobody's really coming to the church. Um, that it's not significant. And, you know, is that true? The man at that point is like, mm, just body blow into the gut. I don't know what my face looked like, but I know what it felt like it looked like. And I just, I so much wanted to say, no, that's not true. We baptized 10 people last week, and we have mission trips going on, and we have this, and we're growing, and we have... I couldn't say any of that. I couldn't say any of that. I knew God was working, but on the level that I was being measured, I had nothing to say back to that. Can anybody relate to that? And so, man, it just felt like a gut punch. And I'm like, oh, Lord, am I doing anything that really matters here in this town? But I felt like the Lord had me to be there. And that was Sanballat. And that was Tobiah in my face, sticking their tongue out, saying, it's worthless what you're doing. Quit, give up, go home. But you know what happened this last Easter? 
the news came to our outreach service that we had, and this is what the headline says. Thousands fill the stadium at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. God ended up blessing the work with those things that they were mocking me for. And in that day, it was an amazing day. Um, And as I looked, I can remember I was just pondering these guys and the things they said, and not even so much them, but Lord, look at what you have done. Because here's the honest truth. What I was doing those years ago when there was not many people coming, and that's the way the majority of the ministry at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg has been, okay? But in recent years, it's changed. But I'll tell you what hasn't changed. I'm the same guy. I hope I'm a better pastor. I hope I'm a better teacher. I hope I can minister in the counseling room a little bit better. I hope I can raise people up and send them out a little more effectively than I did before. But you know what? I'm the same guy. I'm teaching the same Bible and relying upon the same Holy Spirit. And the Lord just said, and that's for you. That's for you to hear that because because you're like, I've got to cheat. No, you keep doing what God's called you to do. You know, we plant, right? We throw the seed out there, we water, but it's the Lord that gives the increase. The average size church in America is 75 people. That's the average size church in America. And when we begin to say that's not significant or you might as well go home because it doesn't measure the matrix of the world or what some you know, crazy guy in Walmart is saying, you gotta, you got to push that aside. Anybody can build quickly, but it takes a long time to build on the rock, right? So if you're feeling discouraged, stop. Stop feeling discouraged. Trust in the Lord. As he said, the Lord will prosper us. That is, he will bring uh, me to the, uh, the desired goal. It means the general idea expressed by this route is to effectively accomplish the intended goal. What's the intended goal for where you are? The Lord will prosper you to that goal. His goal. What does he want? Do it. Complete it. Finish it. Commit your labor, your ministry to the Lord. Satan is out to discourage you. What do you do when you get punched in the mouth? What do you do? I'm talking about spiritually, okay? We know what you do if you're Wes Bentley. But I mean, you know, but I'm just saying... Spiritually, if you get punched in the mouth, what do you do? Not what should you do. What do you do? When Nehemiah, or say, when King David was establishing his kingdom, First Chronicles 12, there's a series of verses that a lot of times we may skip over because it's talking about the, the, uh, the tribes that came to him and this many came in this tribe and that many came to him. But it, just quickly surveying through verses 23 through 25 and 32 through 38, We read this. Now these were the number of the divisions that were equipped for war. Verse 25, sons of Simeon, mighty men of valor, fit for war. Verse 32, sons of Issachar who had an understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. Verse 33, expert in war with all weapons of war. And I love this, stout-hearted men who could keep the ranks. Verse 35, the Danites who could keep battle formation. Verse 36, the tribe of Asher, able to keep battle formation. Verse 37, armed for battle with every kind of weapon of war. All these men of war who could keep the ranks. Over and over again it says, these guys could keep battle formation. They could keep the ranks. So you know what you do when you get punched in the mouth? You keep the battle formation. You don't quit. Can God lead you on to another field of ministry? He absolutely can. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those of you that have been punched in the mouth and you're feeling discouraged and you're feeling like quitting. Has God given you permission to quit? Then why are you thinking about it? You have no permission to quit. Keep the battle formation. Stand strong. Be stout-hearted. Yeah, but it's so hard. Of course it's hard. We're doing something that's, that's of value. Anything that's of value to accomplish it is going to be hard. And so, listen, I know what it's like to labor when it's small and insignificant by the world's standards. But it was never insignificant to me, and I guarantee you it was never insignificant to the Lord. So I stood fast. 
I held the battle formation. I didn't hold the battle formation so one day I could have a headline in the local newspaper that thousands fill the Lynchburg you know, baseball stadium. That's not why I stood stout-hearted. I stood stout-hearted because I needed to speak to the distress in my community. I needed to deliver the word of the Lord. I needed to accomplish the thing that God had put in front of me. And so I say to you, as Jeremiah was spoken to by the Lord. This is from the New Living Translation. If racing against mere men makes you tired, how will you race against horses? If you stumble and fall on the open ground, what will you do in the thickets near Jordan? Listen, I'm so glad that I didn't let that guy in Walmart weary me. I'm so glad I didn't, like that, didn't let that church that was down the road And they were getting together and they were evaluating us and saying, God's doing nothing there at that church. Don't worry about it. It's good that you lost. I'm glad I didn't let that weary me and cause me to give up. The Lord is doing a good work. Are you convinced of it? This is what Nehemiah said. We're doing a good work. If you're loving the people of God, if you're evangelizing your community, If you're teaching the word to your people, you are doing a good work. It's the work of God. And therefore, it is good. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't be worried by the footmen. Because the Lord is going to have you one day run with the horses. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. Third point, leaders must not be distracted. Nehemiah chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4. Now it happened when uh, Sambal and Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sambal and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of what? Yeah, I mean, that just is all you need to know right there, right? But they sought to do me harm. This word for harm is the same word that's used in Nehemiah 2.17 when he told the leaders to look at the distress. He wanted to bring distress to my life. So I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work. So I cannot come down. Why should the work cease? Well, I leave it and go down to you. But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same way. They couldn't discourage, so now they were going to distract. They're going to get in their hands, saying, let's go have a meeting. Let's come out here in the plain of Ono. And he said, no, you want, to, you want to do me harm. He had the discernment to know that, that trouble was on the way. If he went out there, he said, I'm not going to do it. I'm doing a great work. I'm not just doing a good work. I'm doing a great work. And I don't have time to meet with people like you or in other ventures that are going to take me away from what the Lord has called me to do. And I just quickly want to say, how did you begin doing the work? When you began the work, what was your work ethic, if you will, like? What was your focus? What was the attention like? How much energy were you putting there? And maybe you had to adjust it because it was too much at the beginning. You know, all right, so we make those adjustments as uh, Gary taught us. There are seasons where we, it kind of ebbs and flows. We do more, we do a little bit less. But have you been distracted in the work? You've been distracted with, I don't know, maybe it's your hobbies. I've got to just have some me time. Do you have a verse for that? I mean, do you have a verse for me time? I know we say it all the time. I just need some me time. But do you have a Bible verse for that? Well, there's balance, Troy. I know, but that message has already been taught. I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the other side of the coin. We labor. We give ourselves away. We're to be living sacrifices. What David say? I'm not going to give anything to the Lord that doesn't first cost me something. And when we want to try and do ministry because we're so distracted with all these other things that I can't give the Lord my best, there's a problem. You've been distracted. I don't know, maybe you've been distracted by an ungodly relationship. Let me tell you how you know if you are being distracted by an ungodly relationship. If you've been texting her or him while you've been here to keep the conversation going, 
you're distracted. You are out on the plane of Ono. And the enemy's goal and his desire is to distress your life. He's to rob, he wants to rob, kill, and destroy you and bring shame to your family and bring shame to the name of Christ. Don't go to the plane of Ono anymore. Tell a brother on the way home what's going on. Say, I'm going to text this person. I want you to watch me do it. Say, it's over. Well, we haven't done anything yet. But listen, if you're at a, here at this conference and you can't not go three days without talking to her or whoever it is, then there's something wrong in your heart. Quit deceiving yourself. you got to cut it off. Well, you know, what, the other distractions, I gotta, I've got to get enough money. That's what i got to do. And so we, now, instead of pouring yourself into the work of the Lord, you're caught up with all these other business ventures. I'm not saying if you're working a part-time job or a full-time job to do tent working ministry, that's fine. But if it's about making a, a, a you know, pile of money and now you can't put the same attention to the work that you used to, then you're distracted. And so only the Lord can show you what that is in your life. I, I, I can't, don't look at my life and say, what is it for Troy? But I'm just saying, the Holy Spirit will speak to you. If you're distracted in your hobbies, or you're distracted in an ungodly relationship, or you're distracted in trying to make a ton of money and you can't do the work of the Lord or the ministry of the Lord like you used to, quit going to the plane of Ono. Say it's enough. It's time to, to dial in and get back to the great work. Chapter 6, leaders must not make decisions in fear. We need to make them in faith. Chapter 6, verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you are saying are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life. I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had sent him, had not sent him at all, but that he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat, uh, Sambalat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, look at this, that I should be afraid and act in a way, that way in sin, so that they might receive cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. Listen, as a leader, as a man of God, make your decisions from faith, not fear. When we begin to make decisions from fear, you can almost guarantee it's going to be the wrong decision. And the Lord calls us to step out in faith and to do things, and the enemy will come, and he'll begin to whisper in your ear, you know, if you do this, then, man, it's probably going to, you know, all come to a screeching halt. Things are beginning to fall apart. Don't do it. Don't step out. And now, because of fear of, the, of what's going to happen, if I do that, I, I begin to retreat a little bit. And I begin to make other decisions. I, I look for some safety. You know, stepping out into this, this area of ministry, that feels a little dangerous. So I'm going to retreat. I'm going to go back. I'm going to find safety. Listen, though, you're going to feel that over and over again as you follow the Lord. He's going to put things in front of you that are going to seem intimidating. They're going to seem like, if this thing fails, man, this is going to be embarrassing. And I, 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 we recently purchased this building, and it was, it was big, and it was expensive, and we started the building project, and it was way more expensive. Anybody, can anybody relate to that? It was way more expensive than I would have ever. As a matter of fact, if I would have known how expensive it would have been, I wouldn't have started it. Not because it wasn't God leading, but because I don't think my faith was there. 
So God just withheld a little information so I could make the decision. But here's what was going through my mind. Are you nuts, Troy? You are full of so much presumption to think that this many people would come into that building. Who, Who do you think you are? That that many people would come. And I remember walking through this building and I would battle that. You know what? You have these people on staff and you've just made a foolish decision. And you're going to have to fire them and their families aren't going to be able to eat. They're going to have to move. And all of these fears were coming into my mind about the decision that I was contemplating and then had made. And I had to get to the place where I'm like, you know what? That may be true. (laughs) It may be. But here's what I do know. I believe God's told me to step out and to do this, so I'm going to do it. So I'm going to put everything on the table, and I'm going to step out. But if, if we want to follow the Lord and we want to be effective leaders, you are going to be called to take steps of faith, and it's going to be scary. And you're going to feel like, oh, man, this could potentially fail. And in one sense, it's totally true. It can fail because not every decision do I make is it from the Lord, Right? I seek the Lord, but I'm, I'm, I can make a mistake. You can make a mistake. We have made mistakes. But I'd rather make a mistake trying to follow the Lord than not do anything and sit still. Why sit here until we die? This is what the lepers said when they were starving. Why sit, you know, if we sit here, we're going to die. If we go into the camp of the Syrians and they see us, the worst they can do to us is what? Kill us, but we're going to die anyway. So there, there it was that ad- adventurous spirit, if you will. It was survival. I just encourage you to step out. What is it that God is calling you to do? And understand that it's going to be by faith. Now, how much faith? Listen, this is how much faith I had. Got a call. You, you know, I think you should buy this building. I don't think I should buy that building. I don't think I should buy that building. He said, well, would you at least meet with me? I've got, enough, I've got enough faith to go sit down at Hardy's and listen to you make an offer and me say no. I can do that. I've got enough faith for that. So I went, sat and heard and kind of got stirred a little bit. I think I've got enough faith to talk to some of the guys on staff, tell them about what we're thinking. I, I think I have enough faith to take this to the elders. You know what? I think I have enough faith, we have enough faith, to get an appraisal or to get a, you know, a look at this building, you know, is it in good shape? Is it in bad shape? I've got enough faith to do that. You know, we've got enough faith to make an offer. And then, of course, now we're in it. And so there was no choice. You I mean, you had to keep going at that point. But that's the way the Lord often leads us. He gives us just enough to take the next step of faith. But there's going to be somebody in your ear saying, but what if it fails? I think I shared this before, but when I stood up to tell the the church what we were going to do, I said, listen, I'm kind of like Jonathan's to his armor bearer. It may be, maybe, I like to call faith a strong maybe. It may be that we'll go out and that the Lord will do this. I believe that it is, but I'll tell you what, if this is not the Lord, then you're about to see your pastor make the biggest mistake he's ever made in his life. That's what I said, kind of laughed a little bit. And this one sister in the church came up to me, and she came up, older lady, she came up, gave me a big hug, gave me a kiss on the cheek, and she said, if you make a mistake, we all make a mistake. Let's do it. And, you know, this is what our people want to see us do, is take a step of faith. I'm not telling you to go buy that building, okay? I'm just saying, follow what the Lord is calling you to do, and don't let fear keep you from that. We make decisions from faith, not fear. I'm out of time. But labors, uh, leaders work until the work is done, and leaders lead differently. The point being there, Ezra was ashamed to take any support and protection as he traveled from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah was glad when he had it. Who was right? Is it right to have an escort, or is it wrong to have an escort? Because Ezra was ashamed to have it. Nehemiah rejoiced to have it. When, when Ezra had to deal with sin in the company of the people, what did he do? He ripped his beard out. When Nehemiah had to deal with sin, what did he do? He ripped their hair out. <laughs> Which one's right? Listen, w- the Word of God doesn't change. We, we, we know those things that are not non-negotiables. 
But can we give each other enough space to lead a little differently? So some guys are going to have an emphasis here. They're going to have an emphasis there. They're going to have the same priorities of the Word of God and the ministry of the Spirit and missions and evangelism, but they do things a little bit differently. You know, they, they like to rip their own hair out. You like to rip other people's hair out. You know, this guy wants the escort. That guy doesn't want the escort. So give each other a little, little bit of space. And I would say even in your team, don't try to get people that think only like you on your team. It is good to have some beard rippers, and it's good to have some people that rip their own beard, Right? It balances things out. It's good to have those that want the escort, and it's good to have those that don't want the escort. Get men that are committed to the Word of God, to ministering to the church, but if they're different, I think you will be better for it. I pray you'll be blessed as you follow the Lord, and He will strengthen you. But i got like three minutes here, and I just want to pray for those that are discouraged. Listen. I know you don't want to probably stand up and say, I'm discouraged. But I'm standing up. I just went through a whole list of telling you all the places where I got discouraged. I didn't even tell you. I mean, those are the, those are the events when somebody said something to me. But you know who the worst person of all is? He's standing right here. The things I say have said to myself. Looking out the blinds on Sunday morning. Is anybody coming? closing those blinds. What am I even doing here? I can't believe there's nobody even in the parking lot. It's five minutes. Oh, you know. You know what I'm talking about, huh? So just say, listen, we want you to be encouraged before you leave. If you're discouraged, just stand right now. We're going to pray for you. We love you guys. We're glad the work that you're doing. Don't quit. You're getting punched in the mouth. Keep battle formation. Amen? Amen. Those of you that are around him, lay hands on him. Pray for them. We'll close with the word of prayer here in just a minute. Yes, Lord. Oh, Father. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the work that you allow our hands to go to. We pray for these brothers that are standing that are discouraged. We pray for the wives back home that are maybe discouraged. Give us faith, Lord, for the next step. Lord, we pray that you would prosper us. Bring us to the goal that you have in each of our lives, in each of our ministries. Lord, what you want, we want to accomplish it. To your honor, to your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.